next Sunday. So kids, you can be dismissed now to Gospel Project, uh, those up through fifth grade. And as Pastor Todd mentioned, my name is Tad Skinner, and I'm one of the pastors. It's a privilege to be uh, before you this morning and looking at the book of Daniel. Uh, We're working our way through that book, lots of iconic stories from uh, this book. Uh, Many that, even if if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard many of these these stories. So much truth for us in this book that was written over 2,500 years ago. And so we come to another of those iconic stories this morning. And it's one that has lots and lots of applications. You can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, and it's on page... 432 of the Blue Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one at the back. Page 432 of those Bibles. Daniel chapter 5. And as you turn, she had been warned about being late to work. Her boss said, one more time, and that was it. She'd be fired. So when she woke up after sleeping through her alarm, she could see the writing on the wall. Needing a score of 93% on the final exam in order to get a B, the student pulled up his exam. And when he saw the first question, he could see the writing on the wall. Hitler heard the reports of the Allied victories in Normandy and their movement east. And though there were several hundred miles to go, he could see the writing on the wall. So you've heard that statement before. It's a foreboding, ominous warning of something disastrous that's about to come. And today, we get to see where that that, uh, came from first. We get to see the the very literal first time that someone actually did see the writing on the wall. We've maybe heard of it before. Figuratively, you've experienced that in some of the examples that I just shared. But the first time we get to see the literal writing on on the wall. So some of you are familiar with this story, and of course it's more than a story. This is something that tells us about ourselves and about our God. And as I said, there's so, so many helpful applications for us in this story. So let's recap before we read chapter 5. We've heard about King Nebuchadnezzar through the first four chapters, and then there's about a 20-year gap between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar has died, And then there's been a succession of short-term kings. Nebuchadnezzar's son was king for one year before he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. And then that guy lasted four years before being followed by his son, who lasted only one month. And then Nabonidus became king. But he was sent away by the Babylonian clergy because Nabonidus favored the moon god and the Babylonian clergy favored the sun god. And so he was ruling... Babylon, but just ruling from a distance. And his son, Abonidah's son, Belshazzar, who is the king mentioned in chapter 5, was put in place as co-king or co-regent, equal in power to Nabonidus. So he's the subject of chapter 5, Belshazzar. So through all of that chaos and and upheaval and, and ungodliness, Daniel has remained faithful to God. And in the midst of a faithful or a sinful nation, rather, David has remained useful to God. And further, God sees the sinfulness of Babylon. He sees the injustice. 
And we'll see in this passage that God sees and he responds in judgment against those who don't repent. All right, we're going to take our story in parts today. We'll see the king's mockery. We'll see God's response. We'll see the forgotten Daniel remembered. We'll see Daniel's interpretation of God's response. And then finally, we'll see God's just judgment. But first, the mockery, reading verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Just as a quick aside, it says that Nebuchadnezzar was his father. It's not his biological father. That's just simply a way to uh, mention that Belshazzar was in line, in line of the king. So it's, he's in the line of succession of all the kings of Babylon. So we'll see that throughout the chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So King Belshazzar was arrogantly decadent. This was not just a party. This was a blowout. It's a feast for a thousand. And to show his arrogance, he did something that was not normal, not the custom in the ancient world. He drank in front of his subjects. That was apparently a no-no, that the king would not do that in front of his subjects. But he didn't care. But his arrogance wouldn't end there. And in his drunken hubris, he wanted to proclaim himself Lord over all. So if you remember back when Nebuchadnezzar swept in to take Jerusalem the first time, he ransacked the temple of God. And in chapter 1 mentions that he took as plunder the items that the Jewish people used in the temple to worship God. And in Exodus chapter 30, you can see the special instructions that God gave his people on how to use and how to treat those items. Now, we, we won't read Exodus 30 today, but the point is, is that God had set aside those items for his holy use, for the purpose of worship, so that his name would be greatly and rightly proclaimed. But here is Belshazzar mocking God by taking his holy items and using them as props for his debauchery. So friends, let's learn from this that we must not profane the holy things of God. Now, we don't have gold and silver items that God has told us to set aside as holy, but as just a quick application, we do have holy things that we must not profane. And if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're reminded of, of one of those current day, uh, present day applications. Verse, thir- verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we're just as guilty as Belshazzar when we take our holy bodies and act in ways that make a mockery 
of our Creator. And we, we have a lot of young people in our membership right now, and the immediate thought goes, probably goes towards sexual activity with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or towards pornography. And that's certainly true. And I'd encourage you to be vulnerable and open with your friends. Don't let your lust be a secret off-limits part of your life. But making a mockery of God and how we treat our bodies sexually isn't limited only to young people. Sexual sin wrecks marriages. It affects other relationships. We all need each other to not make profane the holy things of God. Our sexual ethics are one of the ways that we honor God. It's one of the ways that we're separated from the world as holy. It's, it's one of the ways that we're consecrated and set apart by God as a witness to the world. And Jesus died so that we might be able to resist the temptations of this world by his holy power. His death has made us holy and he has given us his Holy Spirit so that we might live holy lives consecrated to him. And through him, we have the power to live not a life of mockery, but a life of worship. But not only did Belshazzar misuse the holy vessels, he also used them to worship other gods. Verse 4 says that they drank wine from what the Lord had made holy, and they praised their gods while doing so. These were gods of precious metals and stones, substances that our creator God has made. So it's as though Belshazzar was saying in holding up these holy vessels of God, it's as though he was saying that he, Belshazzar, was Lord over all. He was saying, not God, but I, I will be exalted. So another brief application for us today is, is that you know that we, we do that too. Let's note, Belshazzar likely didn't deny the existence of our God. Belshazzar was a polytheist. He worshipped God right along with all the other lowercase g gods. And of course, Christian brother and sister is here today. We, we don't deny the existence of God either. But are we not also functional polytheists? We don't worship perhaps gold and, and uh, objects of, of stone, but... We do worship sports or celebrities or our children or our relationships or our time, our appearance, ourselves. Again, we're no better than Belshazzar. We profane what is holy and then we worship our idols right alongside our God. But Jesus offers help to us to not profane the things of God, to not follow in the footsteps of Belshazzar. So this story from Daniel is crying out to us to wake up before God needs to get our attention, which is exactly what he did with Belshazzar, starting in verse 5. We read, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, 
and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So God doesn't always answer immediately. He doesn't always bring justice immediately. But he does always answer, and he does always bring justice. And this time, as we'll see in this chapter, it was very quick. So can you imagine? What a frightening thing. We'd all be frightened. But the Bible points out very quickly just how frightened Belshazzar was. He sobered up real quick. It says his face color changed, his mind went racing, he lost mobility, and his knees knocked. So a very literal translation of his, his limbs gave way is that the knots of his loins were loosed. Now many believe that that means that he either lost control of his bladder or he lost control of his bowels, or both. But you can't really blame him, can you? I mean, what a frightening thing this was. As one author put it, the same hand that formed Adam from the dust of the earth, the same fingers that wrote the Ten Commandments, was now pronouncing a judgment on this arrogant man. So the king called all of his wise men into the room. His offer of wealth and recognition was was a desperate attempt to regain some sense of control over what had to have felt like free-falling from the top of a cliff. Just a moment before, Belshazzar thought he had it all. He believed that he was Lord, and now something otherworldly was ominously showing him that he was not at the top of the food chain. So a couple things, just as an aside, that I was encouraged by as I read this and spent time studying. I think it'll be worth uh, mentioning to you. Uh, first, one of the questions I had is, is what is this with the third ruler? Why did, why did he offer to be the third, offer someone to be the third ruler in the kingdom? Don't you think that's odd? It's odd to me. So what's interesting to me anyway was that there was no record of a Belshazzar anywhere in history other than in the Bible. It's one of the things that led some to claim that the Bible was just a fictionalized storybook, that it wasn't real. But about 170 years ago, in 1853, archaeologists found evidence, again, evidence from outside the Bible, it was already evidence in the Bible, but evidence from outside the Bible, that Belshazzar was indeed not just a person, but he was king of Babylon, and that he was named co-regent or co-king with his father. So the offer of being the third ruler was actually the highest in the kingdom besides himself and his father. And the second thing I found interesting is that this throne room was excavated about 100 years ago in 1899. Now they didn't find the message, of course, but what they did find was that the walls were coated with white gypsum, with plaster. Archaeologists confirmed the truthfulness of Scripture again. There really was a white wall in the throne room. So friends, the, the main purpose of the Bible is not to be a history book, but let's rejoice that the Bible is true in every aspect of what it says, even the smallest details. So I hope that's an encouragement to you as it was, as it was to me. 
So moving back to the text, though, we see that all of the king's wise men weren't wise enough. It's a reminder that the wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of man. And perhaps that's one of the things that Paul was thinking of when he wrote 1 Corinthians 3, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. God graciously humbles the so-called wise of this world. So everyone's confused, everyone's terrified, everyone's in an uproar, and then in walks the queen, uninvited. Let's read verse 10. It says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now I... I find this funny. Um, It's as though Daniel is standing in the corner behind glass, and the glass is labeled, in case of interpretation, break glass. Uh, It seems like every other chapter, there's some interpretation that's needed, and somebody has to break the glass, bring Daniel out, and out pops Daniel to save the day. We've got that situation again. You would think the Babylonian kings would get it by now, that Daniel is useful in lots of ways. But anyway, this queen calls for Daniel, and this queen was likely either Belshazzar's mother or the wife of the former king, Nebuchadnezzar. But regardless, she's been around long enough to remember Daniel. She likely was not a believer in the one true God, but she knew wisdom when she saw it. She knew that Daniel had the wisdom of God. She'd seen the difference in him as compared to the polytheists who were around. And a question that I would ask you is, do non-believers see a difference in you? When they're at the end of their rope, or even when they need just a little bit of advice, do they think of you? Do they think of you as a servant, as someone who is ready to help them move or to provide a meal? Do they think of you as someone who's wise with their finances? And so when they're looking to buy a house or when they're trying to get out of debt, they go to you. Do they think of you as someone who has the character and the the, uh, ability to uh, know right from wrong, even when that might be costly to you? Do they see you as someone who has a work ethic that's unmatched at the office or at school? Do they see a difference in you? So I would encourage you to grab somebody in your gospel community or in your challenge community or somebody just around you later today, and ask them to answer you honestly. Do they see a difference in you? And if not, work to take steps to cultivate a different kind of life. And we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, changing us as we submit to God, as we commit to reading our Bible, as we commit to being open and transparent and aware of our own sin as we're vulnerable with a community of loving believers, as we commit to knowing and loving God. 
the queen saw something of God in Daniel, and she boldly brought him to the name of the king. So let's read now as Daniel is finally introduced back into our story, starting in verse 13. We read, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. He's really just insulting Daniel here. He's reminding Daniel of, of where he came from, that he's really just an exile. He's less than, he's lower than. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So there's a lot here for us to discuss and understand and apply. Uh, first, let's, let's set the scene for this. I, I think it's important for us to realize I think God wants us to see the very stark contrast between these two men. Daniel is now over 80 years old. So you can just imagine wise old Daniel shuffling in to face the immature, intoxicated Belshazzar. What a contrast. One had style and one had substance. Belshazzar looked the part, his royal robes, his gold jewelry, the, the women, the wine. He's like, I think of him like a male Kardashian. 
Come on. All right. On the other hand, there's Daniel. He didn't look the part, but what he lacked in style, he, made, he more than made up for in character. It's an amazing contrast between someone who can't control himself, Belshazzar, nobody told him no, and one who is useful to God, one who is disciplined. And we've seen that about, about Daniel already in his diet and his commitment to God in a culture that continues to tell him different. So the difference between somebody who is rendered useless and somebody who is useful to God, the, the contrast between one who is wholly against God and one who is wholly devoted to God, one who is useless before God and one who remains useful to his Lord even after the world has seemingly relegated him to the scrap heap. I think this is just dripping with applications for us today. So let's take a moment to think through a few of these. First, age is not a determinant of your usefulness before God. Some of Daniel's best days, his most fruitful days, occurred after he had turned 80. And for you, your best days don't have to be behind you. And I'm not just talking, of course, I'm not just talking to the 80-year-olds who might be in the room or watching online. If you're older than most in this room, then I'm speaking to you. You are still useful to God. We have a bunch of college students, of young adults, of teenagers who would love for you to invest yourself in their lives. What a wealth of experience there is in this room. A lot of experience, and several of you are giving back of the wealth of that experience. So thank you for that. But if that's not you, would you consider how God might use you? Start meeting with someone younger than you. Start volunteering. Like Daniel, you're useful to our Lord. God has blessed you with so much. How many, how many sermons have you heard? How many prayers have you prayed? Give back from the overflow of what God has so richly blessed you with. One further thing on this. Someone mentioned in a conversation a couple of weeks ago, wishing that we could post an advertisement on our sign out there on Mill that said something like, if you're 40 and over, and if you want to make an eternal investment, then this is the church for you. So if you're not a member of this church and you're a bit older, maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching online, or maybe you're a member who knows someone older who would love to be invested involved in a way that they're not currently. Tell them that this church is for you. Come and join with us. So the second obvious application that I see here for us is the importance of self-control, the importance of discipline. Now that's important for everyone. That's applicable for everyone. But in particular, I want to talk to the fathers or the fathers-to-be. You will lead or are leading in some direction. And there's a tremendous need, a tremendous importance for you to lead into righteousness. Daniel, because of a life of faithfulness, a life of consistent self-discipline and commitment to the Lord, he was used by God to the benefit of those around him. And Belshazzar, in contrast, because of his lack of self-control, I think of him like a guy playing video games every night for a few hours at a time. He led others into destruction. Personal holiness 
Habits of spiritual discipline, commitment to the Lord, those are vastly important and in short supply in our world today. So commit yourself to the Lord, for it's through him that we're able to live lives of holiness and of of discipline and of commitment. Third, be impressed by character and not by style or status. We live in a world of bling, and whether that's the bling of of new cars, jewelry, uh, or if it's um, being with the right people, the right parties, being with the in crowd, our world is obsessed with status. But what really matters is character. And in the end, our lives are not measured by stuff or status. Our lives are measured by character. Are we exhibiting the character of Christ that can only be found through a relationship with with Jesus? We need more Daniels and fewer Belshazzars. I'd love to speak with you about those applications or anything else, but uh, there's a bit more here for us to uh, lean into and discuss. So in walks Daniel as we already read in verse 17, and you can almost see him waving his hand in dismissal. He casts aside Belshazzar's bling as ridiculously unnecessary. And then he launches into a bit of a history lesson, starts preaching. He mentions God five times in verses 18 through 28 as he reminds us that God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom. Remember that word gave that Pastor Chuck mentioned in in chapter 1? We're reminded that God appointed Nebuchadnezzar as he appoints all rulers. That remains a very helpful truth for us in our day and age. God is the one that establishes those in places of authority. But even further than that, Daniel reminds that Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant man. So God humbled him to show that God is the real ruler of all. We saw that last week. And finally, Daniel tells Belshazzar that he is just like Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he's even worse. Daniel directly confronts Belshazzar. He's essentially saying, you think you can hold God in your hand by holding up these holy vessels that were dedicated to the Lord. But God is the one who holds your very breath, your very life in his hand. Therefore, we have the writing on the wall. We don't have time to go very deeply into this application, but I'd encourage you to talk in your gospel community or challenge community, grab a friend, talk through this, answer these questions. Belshazzar mocked God, but how do I mock God? Belshazzar's sin made him look foolish, but how does my sin make me look foolish? Belshazzar tried to buy God off. He tried to protect himself from God's judgment by finally turning to God's man, to Daniel, to try to save himself from the coming judgment. But how do you try to buy God off? Do you try to check the boxes of legalism? Do you say things like, God, if you'll just help me pass this test, I'll do whatever you want. We see that God grabbed Belshazzar, and made him see his foolishness. But what might God use to wake you from your foolishness? One last application before we explore 
what the writing on the wall says and what it means. Belshazzar was a bit like the schoolyard bully. He's trying to bully God and proclaim himself to be the king of his little kingdom when really there's a whole wide world beyond. He was the ruler of the largest kingdom on the planet. That's true. His little kingdom looked like everything to him, but it was really nothing. It's as though he's looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Everything looked bigger than what it actually was. He was oh so prideful. And verse 22 says that he had not humbled his heart. So aren't we Christians like that too? More than we'd like to admit. Yes, we're believers in God. Yes, we have a much more God-centered focus, certainly, than Belshazzar did. But don't we look through the wrong into the telescope sometimes too? We can be just as prideful. C.S. Lewis said that we go about telling God what to do. We go about dictating to him. God, fix the roof on my cottage when God wants to build a castle for us instead. We need to humble our hearts. We need to widen our eyes and see that we're not at the center of everything and that God has more purpose and use for us than we could possibly imagine. We have a much too small view of God, of who he is and what he wants to do in our lives for his glory and for his purposes. He is a big God who wants to be glorified by us in big ways. So now about that writing. It was written in Aramaic, but apparently it was all crammed together. The letters were all crammed together with no vowel markings or pronunciation markings that might help somebody trying to interpret, interpret it to understand what the, what the words actually were, that there were actually words there. And the writings reveal that like an author putting the final touches on his manuscript, God is turning the page on Belshazzar. So what courage by Daniel by the way, can you imagine the temptation that perhaps you would feel standing in front of the most powerful person on the planet, a person that could end your life with one word? Very easily, Daniel could have lied. He could have interpreted the, 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 the words by saying, Almighty King, the writing says, God loves you. Long live the King. But instead, Daniel chose to speak the hard words of God. So what lessons there are in that for us as we share with those around us, as we speak hard words, as we proclaim the truth that there's a cost to being a, a disciple of Christ. There's suffering and difficulty ahead for those who seek to follow him and make much of him. But we must speak God's truth and not our version of the truth. So the words that were written, many means numbered, tekel means weighed, perez, which is the singular of parson, means divided. So these are indicators of the consequences of God's judgment. To put this in a sentence, God's saying, you've been paid out, you're too light and division. Or to put it in our terms of today, he says, you're a lightweight, Belshazzar. Your number is up. You're being replaced. You're going to be carved up. What a judgment this was on Belshazzar. So finally, we end with God's word coming to pass. We end with justice, and it comes quickly. Let's read the last three verses, being in 29. It says, Then Belshazzar 
gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall. He knew his kingdom was at an end. Now, there's no evidence, though, of repentance from him. It's just simply resignation. So what an encouragement this would be, God's judgment would be, to the early readers of this book. They were still in exile when this was written. They went from a free people to an enslaved people. And now they're changing hands from one enslaver to another. It's as though someone just bought their mortgage or bought their apartment building. New enslavers, new owners. But God is just, and he is still in control, and nothing passes through God's hands. Our holy and sovereign God, the one who is just. And he sees and responds in judgment against those who don't repent. So I hope, I hope that you've been convicted as I have, as, as you've seen that I have far more in common with Belshazzar than I'd like. And God saw the foolishness of Belshazzar, and he sees our foolishness as well. God has seen all of us who are without Christ, and we've been found wanting. And if we don't have a heart of repentance, a heart that acknowledges our foolishness, our sin, if we don't have we don't turn from our rebellious ways, then judgment is coming. Now, this is such an amazing story, so many applications for us today, but that's the most important one. We're not our own. God is in control of everything, and he will not be mocked. He will respond in righteous judgment against those who stand in opposition to him. So Daniel's title of third in command of Babylon lasted one day. And history records that Babylon's walls were at least 40 feet tall and 25 feet thick, impenetrable, or so it was thought. But at the very moment that Belshazzar was partying the night before, mocking God, the Persians were camped out on the plains just outside Babylon, readying their attack. And the inhabitants of Babylon went to bed that next night with every reason to believe that they were safe and sound. But they awoke the next morning a conquered people. And why? Why was that? Well, it's because Belshazzar had mocked God. But our God is sovereignly in control, and he will not be mocked. So don't miss this truth. Belshazzar needed a mediator. He needed someone to serve as an interpreter between himself and God, to read the writing on the wall. And we do too. One of the lasting lessons of this story is that on our own and in our own merit, we are no more righteous than Belshazzar. We profane God, we rely on other gods, we, we bargain with God for his favor. We're sinners. And there's an enemy outside our gates. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you may feel as though your walls are just as strong and tall as were those outside Babylon. 
But those walls, your walls, are no match for this enemy. Because you see, we needed a mediator too. We needed someone to warn us of the coming judgment. But even that's not enough. What we really need is someone who will save us from that judgment. And friends, if, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're relying on yourself rather than God, if you're not working to make God the center of everything in your life, if that's you, then judgment is coming. So praise God, we not only have someone who can read the writing on the wall, we, can have some, we have someone who is able to save us from that coming judgment. Jesus warns us of the coming judgment, and he took the punishment for sin that we deserve. He did what Daniel could not. And using the imagery of this story, Jesus took the onslaught of the Persians so that you could escape. He died so that you might live. That's what he did on the cross for you. And no one has ever loved you like that before. No one has ever sacrificed like that for you. And not just that, even better than that, Jesus is the true king. He gave his life for yours. Like Belshazzar, we all have been found wanting. But Jesus was not. And through his perfect righteous life and his cruel death for you, who are believers in him, he clothed you in purple, he placed the gold chain around your neck, and he announced that you're now a child of the king with all the privileges and promises that come along with that. He took what you deserve and he gave what seems impossible. And if you're a believer in Jesus, the response is to rejoice, to worship him, for what he's done for you. And if you're not yet a believer, then there is still time. Your fate can be different from that of Belshazzar if you would repent of your sins and turn to him as the one who saves. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice that you are the one who is saved. You have warned us of the coming judgment and you have provided a way for us to escape that judgment. So we rejoice and we worship you for what you have done, for your perfect life that you live for us. God, if there are people in this room who do not know you, who have not turned from their sin, who have not confessed it and recognized that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that they're good works, their righteousness, their good deeds are not enough. God, I pray that they would hear this message and that their fate would be different. pray that they would return and repent. Father, we thank you for, again, for the work of Jesus. Thank you for the love that it took to make that sacrifice to send him to us. And Father, we thank you that you have given us all things as your believers. We pray that we might rejoice and glorify you in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.